welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the field. I'm Emily Long, and I'm joined by my fellow host, Kirsten Lopez. On this episode, we're very lucky to have two of the editors of the fantastic book, Engaged Archaeology in the Southwestern United States and Northwestern Mexico. Dr. Sarah Hare and Dr. Kelly Hayes-Gilpin, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank Happy you. to be here. We're thrilled to have you here. And before we delve into your book, please tell our listeners a little bit about yourselves, like your research or um, uh, your universities and so forth. I'm, I'm Kelly, and I started out in archaeology in Michigan back in the 1960s when I was a little kid and my father was an avocational archaeologist, which means that that wasn't his profession. He worked in the auto industry, but he enjoyed um, going on digs, as they said back then, and learning about archaeology. He was especially interested in historical archaeology and industrial archaeology, but I got to know archaeologists from childhood and at some point decided that's what I wanted to do. So I pursued higher education um, through a PhD at the University of Arizona. And then I, my first job was as a tribal archeologist working for the Navajo Nation Archeology span Department. And that's a topic we might wanna come back to. Uh, but then I, I wanted to be a museum curator, but ended up becoming a professor instead at Northern Arizona University, and I've been doing that for about 20 years now. So I find myself in the unenviable position of, of being that older generation that's still trying to figure things out. <laughs> that's wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, and I'm Sarah, and um, I um, also have wanted to be an archaeologist since I was a kid. And I, I grew up in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is, you know, a pretty culturally rich um, city. And I'm, I guess I was always continually surprised that not everybody became an archaeologist growing up there. Um, and I started um, archaeology, well, at, at Crow Canyon um, High School Field School. And then I um, volunteered with the National Park Service at Bandelier National Monument, um, the director of that project, um, this guy named Bob Powers, took me to my first Pecos conference. So I think I met Kelly when I was 18 uh -huh. years old, yep. and she was a grad student at the U of A. Yeah, um, and then and then I ended up going to the U of A grad school about three years later, and was so super happy to know that there was somebody I recognized there. Um, I graduated from U of A, and then I've been in um, CRM, um, Cultural Resource Management, since I um, graduated at a um, firm in Tucson um, called Desert Archaeology, <laughs> and um, mostly working in Arizona since then. Oh, and I guess I should say I became president of the company four years ago. Oh, I guess wow, that's congratulations. Right. Yeah, <laughs> so I worked my way up. Yeah, yeah those are all sense. wonderful shout-outs for Crow Canyon, um, that definitely, Crow Canyon helped launch my career too. And uh, my first Pecos conference is where I got my first job. And <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, like, woo, woo, Southwest. <laughs> yeah, but a little bit of networking goes a long way in, in Southwest archaeology. It really does. <laughs> but thank you both for those wonderful introductions. And you can see um, with your career paths where, where you were going with the book too, just kind of topic-wise, like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But now getting into the book, this wonderful book, Engaged Archaeology in Southwestern United States and Northwestern Mexico. Why did you want to put this book together? And oh, 
Um, if you don't mind mentioning your other editor real quick before we forget about him. So our other editor is Patrick Lyons, the director of the Arizona State Museum. So you will see uh, a University of Arizona connection of, of all three of us had, had worked together since we were students. Oh, wow. And with, with me at NAU and, um, and the other two in, in Tucson, we've always kept up with each other and seen a, a connection there uh, between what we do at Northern Arizona University as an applied anthropology program. And the U of A at the, at the time we were writing had developed a, an MA in applied anthropology, but its PhD program has supplied contract companies like Desert Archaeology mm -hmm. um, through many, many years. So there were all these connections that were not just about the academy and academics mm -hmm. and, and professors. Yeah, and, and Patrick's, um, Patrick's job at the Arizona State Museum is, is, is both a research job and um, also they, they, um, they manage cultural resource management in the state. So, so um, like there is that applied and research focus to, to um, his job, Kelly's job, and, and my job probably is, is more on the applied side. So. Exactly. And, and Patrick and the State Museum administer the state burial laws. Oh, so wow. they work with all of the tribes in the state to... Um, ensure respectful treatment of ancestors and facilitate repatriation and, and some of the topics that show up in the book. So the Southwest Symposium is a meeting, a regional meeting that's been going on since 1988. And each one of those Southwest Symposiums has been published in one form or another. And it's kind of settled into a contract with the University Press of Colorado who will facilitate um, the conference organizers editing a volume. So we didn't have to go chasing for a, a publisher. That was already set and that, that helped us and encouraged us along the way. So what we had to do was decide what would be the focus of this conference in 2016 and who would we invite to present the, the most recent research and synthetic research and point the way forward. You know, where are we going as a discipline, as a practice mainly um, here in the Southwest? So um, maybe Sarah will talk a little bit about how we picked the topics. Yeah, so um, the, the conference rotates venues through the, um, you know, the cities in the Southwest that are big enough to hold, host a conference. So, um, you know, one nice thing about getting Kelly into this conference was that um, Flagstaff hasn't really been a host, but Tucson is a host, you know, every fourth or fifth time. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the, the, the topics have um, tended, you know, are often research-based topics. Like there was a lot of work on household archaeology, migration, demography. And I think we felt like it was time to revisit um, kind of archaeological practice mm -hmm. and, and the ways we do archaeology um, for, the, for this Tucson conference. And Tucson and Flagstaff, as Kelly's mentioned, you know, do this really pretty well. We have some really good um, kind of applied educations and attention to how, how we actually work in the Southwest and especially with, um, with um, indigenous groups. Um, so that was what we decided we wanted to showcase in, in, in Tucson um, for that conference. And so we put together um, four sessions um, for it. And then the way the book happens is like, it's, it's pretty free form. It's like each, each session, oh, each session has an organizer. Um, so we should also call out, um, you'll have to help me remember TJ Ferguson, Carrie Thompson, 
John Ware and Peter Whiteley and Ben Nelson organized the sessions for us. And That's the ones. Yeah. And then um, not, not every session wanted to participate in the book. So, you know, there's a little bit of crafting to try and make it work. Um, some folks thought they would be better um, to publish in journals. Um, some were okay with a slower schedule that, that a book takes. Um, and, um, you know, some folks were like writing their dissertations and things, and it was just not a good use of their time to do this with us. Um, so write a book and do a dissertation at the same time. I thought. <laughs> <laughs> I think it depends on how your clock works. <laughs> Many try if you succeed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so the, the I mean, the book is definitely a conference proceedings book, but but the the conference is put together knowing that we get to do this. Um, you know, this is part of the benefit of it, and, and making sure that that the conference conversation has a long term impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the conference papers were so good that I think we're pretty excited that the the book reflects that. Mm-hmm. So. That's pretty cool because, like, no pressure at all. It's going to be published, right? <laughs> right. Right. That if you come along with us and do the work and go through the peer review and do your revisions and uh, and, and we help guide and, and shape that it will be published. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not as competitive as um, a journal article might be, for example. You're not just on your own. It really is. You're, you're joining a team to do this work. Uh, we have been, I will acknowledge, we have been seen as a bit elitist as an organization because it's invitation only. You don't just submit the, the same paper that you've been giving at the SAA for the last 10 years. And because you are a prestigious person, you, you get to take part in this. It's not like that. It really is. We start with the topics like Southern Athabascan archaeology. Where are we? with understanding the, the deep history of Apache and Navajo communities. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we'll invite people who are doing that work. And, and in this case, um, a number of people, archeologists who are members of Apache and Navajo communities. Now, some of those people were writing their dissertation at that time. Mm-hmm. And so they're part of the team, but, you know, finish the dissertation first and, and then publish. So uh, that's, that's how we tried to be inclusive mm-hmm. uh, based on who's doing the work, regardless of whether they have a PhD yet or not, um, regardless of their work setting, uh, regardless of their name recognition or, or prestige. You know, it's just who's doing the work on the ground right now. We're going to invite them to, to take part in one of these focus sessions. That's cool. Yeah. And I think the, um, the, the biggest part of the book um, um, it was, um, was on um, NAGPRA and um, how repatriation and research um, can serve each other. And I think that um, that particular set of papers really um, has a very diverse set of authors, um, you know, because it's coming out of um, like, you know, the, the um, tribal communities um, are some are some authors and um, and the bioarchaeologists and the curators and, you know, sometimes professors and, um, you know, at multiple institutions. So so I think that one really opened up authorship, um, you know, partic- particularly in this in this volume. Mm-hmm. And that for such an important conversation. I feel like there's that feeling like, well, we did it. Like, no, not quite. And just for the sake of our listeners, NAGPRA, it's American legislation um, for the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. And it requires museums, um, agencies, so forth, receiving federal funding, have federal status, et cetera, to go through their collections and work with 
tribes to repatriate burial goods, um, items of cultural patrimony, uh, human remains, to so that they can go home, essentially. And I thought this was a wonderful conversation that the book brought up about how we need to continue doing this and that it's a, a wonderful form of engagement. Yep, <laughs> I agree. Yeah, this was just really timely because this has been going on since 1990 that we've been doing this work, but it's really becoming more collaborative and a, a little more um, balanced toward, toward equity. Mm-hmm. And But there's still a lot of resistance in the scientific community especially people who haven't had the opportunity to, to work closely with indigenous communities on this process. There's sort of a fear that museums are going to be empty. There's going to be nothing left, that all of the scientific data will be lost. And what these papers show is that's not the case at all. When you work together with, with communities to, to do the documentation of repatriation, that you learn a lot and you find out what's interesting to those communities. So there were questions about migration and cultural identities, movement on the landscape, time depth, that the the documentation that happened in the process of getting ready to repatriate facilitated. Mm -hmm. So what's happened with a lot of museums is there may be human ancestors there, but nobody quite knows whose they are. They haven't been studied. Um, the, The communities don't know who's there. And even scientists don't know what's the potential to learn from mm-hmm. from this process just because nobody's working with them. So with um, a concerted and collaborative effort, you can do, do this documentation and really learn something that can enhance understanding of the histories of, of contemporary indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. I love that you can learn so much more by working together than trying to hoard information or collections that you're it's like I've seen museum collections they're piled upon piles upon piles and like oh come on you weren't going to study this anyway (laughs) you can't study it if you don't know what's there and you don't need to keep it once you've documented it Um, if it's a funerary object um, document it and and then let it go back to repose in the earth and complete its intended life cycle Mm -hmm. And um, and nothing's really lost. You know, my my, my I, I don't work in a um, museum, so I have a less direct experience with um, Nagpra in that context. But I mean, it, it sort of felt like Nagpra has been you know completely transformative of the way that um, you know we work with um, bioarchaeology in the field. And you know, I was kind of remembering the days when I read archaeology reports, and there was like an appendix at the end that talked about the physical anthropology. And now these bioarchaeologists who are writing in this book and the tribal members and the archaeologists who are, who are um, part of those chapters are writing about like really vibrant topics that are that are absolutely, you know, kind of cutting edge um, things to consider about about um, people. And um, I, I forget, like Deb Martin's chapter talks about, you know, violence in the human body and different ways. What what um, tribe, um, I think John McClellan talks about, you know, what it is that tribes care about being documented um, and, and how to record that. Um, you know, in our in our process, and so it's it's um, you know it's really changed the position of of how we um, how we work in in archaeology, and also of course um, the, the um, fact that these are really long term. Um, 
projects to repatriate. I mean, I think some of these you can see are many years in the works. I don't know if they're decades in the works for some of these. Some and are, so yeah. the build, some of the build, like the building of relationships has been something that's also completely changed um, Southwest archaeology because, you know, you ha- like, I think it's, um, I don't know how to actually say her name, um, Cecile, Cecile and Cecile um, Ganton. Yeah. Her, um, her chapter with um, Renelda Grant, um, you know, talks about both good and bad experiences and the trust building that happens in, 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 um, in doing this work. And when the trust has emerged, you know, that's, or at least you learn to talk to each other, that, that I think has changed all our work, not even NAGPRA work, um, but like all the work we do together. And um, so that's one thing that I, I kind of, um, you know, read into um, how NAGPRA has changed. Um, um, it's, it's just been a starting point for us. Just going back to the uh, museum collections bit, like having worked in collections um, in different contexts, it's interesting um, to see, you know, the both the wealth of uh, information that can be sort of locked up in museum collections. And I don't think really till um, the recent push for getting uh the contents of a lot of these collections out to researchers uh that happened with the pandemic and a little before then um you know there's just a lot of stuff that like hasn't been studied as you know was mentioned if you don't know it's there it's hard to study it um and i remember uh one of the more recent um collaborations I did in Texas, I believe this was for, um, so I co-chaired the Fiber Perishables Interest Group for the SAAs, and we coordinated with several museums to get people into the collections uh, so that the museums could get exposure to what is physically there so that they could get researchers in to study it. Um, And also, giving people who research these types of things because fiber perishables are most commonly found in museums, rarely in the ground. Um, there's lots of reasons for that, but the, the long-term challenge being is stuff that's been in museums for a long time. Um, it just kind of sits. Yeah, it definitely seems like a, an ongoing issue. It's just, we don't even know what's there because everything's just sitting. Yeah. So. Yeah, and that's yeah. That is, museums are working through that with digital access, and that there are digital humanities grants um, yeah. for even for small museums who want to make the their inventories and sometimes even images and and data available online. And that that brings us to another section of of this book, which is using ethnography and working with cultural anthropologists and linguists, bringing bringing their techniques and skills together with with archaeology to look at long-term history and some of the more the more human aspects like kinship and social organization that are hard to get at archaeologically so there's loads of older ethnographic information Mm -hmm. in in archives and even published that you have to take a an approach that is again kind of collaborative with the source Mm -hmm. communities where you have to understand of what research was done in a very colonialist salvage ethnography kind of context in the 19th century and and what can can be 
interpreted from those older studies um, through languages that are still spoken today, but maybe the kinship system is no longer as detailed as it once was because these things change with economic and, and ecological conditions and uh, the impacts of, of colonialism over time on communities. So uh, we had a whole section on the interdisciplinary work of, of bringing archaeology and ethnography together um, with, with indigenous community engagement. That's wonderful. And I think that's an excellent way to end the first segment is just how collaboration on many, many, many levels just I, brings the field as a whole, brings it together, but moves it forward, I think, in a much more positive direction than our uh, colonial past, which has a very, very long <laughs> history that I'm sure we could all rant about for a very long time. But it's more important to understand it. Exactly. <laughs> than, exactly. than it is to merely rant about it, yes. That is a very good point. Um, in the next segment, we will talk more about uh, the different topics that are presented in the book. We will be back. Did you know that we have a blog? Check out the Women in Archaeology website for a variety of blog posts, as well as past episodes. Interested in supporting the podcast? From the website, you can check out our Patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blog and podcast. We can give you a cool sticker in return. Again, thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. We have the editors of the wonderful book, Engaged Archaeology. Um, and we're going to be getting more into the topic of what does engaged archaeology actually mean? How does one have engaged archaeology? And so just to get started, what is engaged archaeology all about? I guess um, I'll, I guess I'll start on this one. Go right um, on. I, um, I think of engaged archaeology, well, I think of archaeology as that archaeology is a starting point for conversations that we already know that our archaeological record is, is so incredibly fragmented and the little bits that we work with, um, you, you know, are, need to be re reconstructed into whole lives. And so um, engaged archaeology is, is how do we look around um, and engage other people to, to help us reconstruct this? Some of this is like our standard archaeological methods and the theories that we've grown with. Some of this is interdisciplinary work, so looking to the other sciences um, to help us out. You know, um, you know, the physical sciences, I guess, in, in particular, have you know are, are you know kind of there side by side with us most of the time when we're doing our field work, and then of course um, the conversations with um, descendant communities and um, the communities that we work with in in um, and those can be one and the same um, as we try and look at um, the relationships between um, people and land through time. And so, how do you get from mm -hmm. you know that that fragment of stone or pottery um, into to the richness of, of past lives. And I think it takes all those tools. And so I think of engagement at each and every one of those steps. Like, what, you know, how do you go from what do you hold in your hand to, 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 to complete lives? And that's how I think about engaged archaeology. Um, mm -hmm. Kelly, what do you think? <laughs> I think it's about the relationships that, that we build outside of our own discipline, which has, has tended to be a bit insular mm -hmm. over the years. And, and there's reasons for that. But I think it's more about connecting with other social scientists, the natural sciences, but with mostly with communities and the descendants of the people whose, whose history you're charged with um, understanding. I don't want to say reconstructing. That's a yeah. little 
too facile, but we're we're working together to to try to understand some deep history mm-hmm. uh, relationships between people and places, ecosystems, um, climate change, migration, the the movements. Why do people move? How do people move? Social identities, social relationships. So um, this larger world that we're in relationships with is is what this is about. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess you, you remind me that also it's not um, like, I don't think we see archaeology as doing archaeology for the discipline's sake or mm-hmm. for science's sake. I think we see archaeology as being very much a, a um, kind of current conversation and um, how is it part of our, um, the, you know, um, our work together with modern peoples um, and, you know, the descendants of these places. Um so, so that's also maybe part of our of engaged archaeology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so we with the the repatriation section, we we talked a lot about in, engaging with tribal historic preservation offices with um, community members, um, not only Native American but the the Hispanic community in in Tucson, for example, um, a historic cemetery there that was impacted by a. A development project and how did the archaeologists work with with multiple uh, communities mm-hmm. and then we're we're also in the history of this whole southwest symposium series we're we're very committed to working across the international border mm-hmm. so that's why we have northwestern mexico in the title it's a mouthful but we were really committed to the the greater southwest northwest as we call it and, and even just being the northern edge of, of Mesoamerica, that there's a, a macro region there mm-hmm. that, um, for example, Hopi migration histories place the origins of some Hopi ancestors uh, deeply into Mexico. And, and then, of course, Tucson sits very close to, to the border. And as... Um, some people there say the border crossed us. We don't cross the border. That was part of Mexico until very, very recently. And there was no boundary there mm-hmm. um, until very recently. So if we're going to look at the long-term history of Piman communities in particular in Southern Arizona, uh-huh. there was no border, there was movement, and there were communities interacting with each other over very long distances in the past and what's divided us as archaeologists is the language barrier oh, so you okay. really do have to make an extra effort to work with archaeologists in mexico to learn enough spanish in my case to read it you know i won't claim to speak it um but you know enough to interact with colleagues mm-hmm. but to to read the professional literature of mexico in in Spanish, and then likewise, we have colleagues in in Mexico who read English and speak English and come to these conferences, and and we work it out. There there are enough people who who work um, who are completely bilingual in our professional community to really help facilitate interaction. So we had a, a group looking at bringing the, the natural sciences, physical sciences, material sciences into studying ancient long-term relationships, in, in this case, around the production and trade of turquoise ornaments. Mm-hmm. And so how do you source turquoise? Um, how do we track how far it was 
traded or, or moved by migration in the past? And how do we look at manufacturing techniques and the meanings that turquoise and other blue-green stones mm-hmm. had? So that was maybe a what seems like a small topic, but it really was one way of looking in, in very great depth with uh, multiple scientific techniques to look at something that was part of history or that gives us a, a little doorway into the history of migration and movement and long distance and deep time relationships between what's now two different nations with, mm-hmm. with different languages and different approaches to, to doing this work. And I'm guessing a lot with engagement in general, you need to have a lot of willingness on all sides to bring all of this together. Because I do think there's still the issue in archaeology is like, my research, mine, it's my precious. (laughs) That's it. Yeah. (laughs) And so I'm guessing a lot of being able to not only cross the language barriers and um, so forth, but trusting others with your research as well that's that's it and it's it's extra effort but it's effort that really uh, opens up all kinds of new ideas new approaches new relationships Mm -hmm. and i mean one nice thing um, here in tucson and at the university of arizona i don't think i don't think these authors were university of arizona um, graduates but i think a fair number of for example, Sonoran area archaeologists have been grad students at the University of Arizona. And so the long-term relationships and trust and research collaborations, um, you know, have been built um, here with us being a border university um, mm-hmm. as well. So. That's pretty cool that, it, that it's been so integrated. Um, yeah, yeah. That's, that's pretty fun. Yeah, I mean, actually, it's it's been interesting because, like, the challenge has been that you know, I mean, I think folks have been really good about going back, you know, back to Mexico and working for um, Ina, the um, you know, the national organization um, um, that does archaeology down there. Um, but um, but we've kept we've kept up those connections. The, the challenge has been that, like, you know, the legal processes are so different. So not just the language, mm-hmm. but the um, you know, the way that we do, you know, for example, um, cultural resource management in, in um, Arizona is so different than the way, you know, developments are treated in Mexico. So we get a lot more work done here and recognizing that there's, you know, probably a, a very rich um, record that's just across the border that matches it, that we'd love to understand better. Yeah. You know, just the whole, the whole process, the funding mechanisms are just, you know, completely different, um, you know, 60 miles away. Just out of curiosity, um, on my end, I know I genuinely didn't know much about a collaborative effort on at any level working with local communities to working with indigenous communities and so forth in my undergrad and that wasn't something really brought up until I went to graduate school and then started working for federal agencies as well and the more and more I've learned I find it really unique the resistance on both ends for working together. And I wonder what is the best mechanism to be able to reach across to communities that may have not been reached out to before to bring a more engaged perspective, collaborative effort from communities that may have been ignored in the past? Well, it's all about building relationships Mm -hmm. and and those are going to be personal. So it's taking the time. Listening is really important. Don't mm-hmm. just come in and present, here's my research, I want to present it to you. You know, here's some right. things that I think you would benefit from. Don't do it that way. Go, just go in, build a relationship of time and 
generosity and social trust and then say, we have this skill set or we have these resources in this, this agency or this university or, or this um, foundation, for example. Um, is there a way that we can help you? And, and I, just find out what the community's needs are mm-hmm. and sit down, sit down and, and tell stories, sit down, share your background and your interests and, and eat together. Oh, yes, definitely food. <laughs> that definitely think, helps. Um, not treating your relationships as part of your day job. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, so mm-hmm. um, so, um, the, the, you know, being being people together, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether that takes, you know, some, some additional travel, some additional time, your weekends, it's not, it's not nine to five. Um, I think when you're, when you're building together. Mm-hmm. I think that's excellent advice. And then kind of going from there, I mean, what I find hard then I think for some, I guess, companies, some agencies and whatnot that they focus just exclusively like, well, we did the project we're done, you know, how, how does that, like, if the relationship is not even on the radar, but it should be, how does one even get that going? Because sometimes the only relationship is the letter you send saying, "Eh, there's nothing there. The end, you know, type of thing. How can we get more people involved? Well, public archaeology is, is, of course, a form of engagement. That, that isn't limited to indigenous communities, but any community that you're working with, whether it's the, the fourth grade, you could plug into the fourth grade curriculum on ethnic diversity in your state or history mm-hmm. in, in your local area. You could plug into um, all kinds of like community cleanup projects mm-hmm. or building or like Habitat for Humanity type projects, just just humanitarian efforts, um, just so many ways that don't have to do with your particular project or, or agenda. Just people just need to know who you are. But with federal agencies, this is really hard mm-hmm. because the way you move up in a federal agency, as you know, is to to get a promotion, you basically have to move to another park or forest or BLM unit or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And that means that by the time you get to know people in a community, you're, you're moving on. So this might be a little easier for universities where we do tend to stay in an academic position or museums for a long time. And it's harder for contract companies because they're all about billable hours Mm -hmm. and going to a community picnic or giving a public presentation at the library is not necessarily um, billable hours. Mm -hmm. So where do you find the time to do that above and beyond relationship building? But, but you, you have to invest in that. Yeah. Yeah. I I think as a contract archeologist, one of the things that I see that's successful, at least here in the Northwest um, for people is to, as you mentioned, see this as, as a larger um, impact and building those relationships outside of the project, knowing that you're going to run into this um, situation or, um, you know, these are the same tribes or people that you're going to be working with through time if you plan on, like, staying, living, and working in the same region f- 
for an extended period of time. I think in contrast to agencies, uh, CRM or contract archaeology can be a little bit more um, easy to build those relationships and know that that will be an investment in the future of archaeology, of your career, of your personal growth, um, and your own personal relationships too. Um, I know a lot of contract archaeologists can get burnt out pretty quickly, mm-hmm. um, especially working on the road and building those bigger relationships, I think can definitely help. Um, I know myself running into the same tribal archaeologists over the years when, you know, a lot of uh, uh, archaeologists will kind of turn over, you know, over the course of like five to 10 years. And just knowing that the same tribal people are more or less always there is comforting and is helpful in building those relationships. Um, So as far as I think anyone who's afraid of losing that time in billable hours, it's, it's short-sighted. I agree. I agree. And you can turn some of this into billable hours. If, if you've got a sponsor who cares about how they look (laughs) in the larger world, if they care about their relationships, they may well fund and they should fund a public component, a public interpretation, public outreach component to any development project. Yeah. So there should be kids activities. There should be site tours. There should be public oriented outreach, whether it's a, a coloring book or a, a public presentations, a film, um, school presentations. Oh, the film idea is really cool. Oh, yeah. I mean- Navajo, yeah, Navajo Nation Archaeology Department did several films on road projects. That's that, cool. That were just terrific. They would interview elders about how what their clan migration stories were and which sites they had settled in and how they used to use stone tool materials or how they gathered plants and just wow. a real a really rich um, deep explanation of the the long term dwelling in those places. Oh, and where are those you, available? They're not Oh anymore. no. Because they were on VHS tapes. Oh, I was hoping you so would I'm say YouTube way back. or, or no, something. No, but oh, that, no. you know, that's not a bad idea for a digital humanities archives uh, project would be let's recover those and convert the VHS to digital and get them on YouTube. Like we're looking because, at you, grad students. Get yeah, to it. We found your project. Yeah. Go! <laughs> but, and they may still be doing that. I just haven't been working with, um, with that program for a while. Yeah, and that's, I mean, part of most contract and federal related work as 106 projects usually have a requirement for a public facing component, or at least a community facing component, um, whether that's the general public or the indigenous or local community you're working with. But um, there's supposed to be, in theory, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> something like that. So that could be an easy way to to find that time. And I guess one thing, one thing that I've done in my work, um, like, I, I mean, I, I, I work in Tucson, Arizona, but my, my project areas have all been in central and northern Arizona. 
And on all the projects that I've directed, um, um, Native Americans have been part of my crew in various ways. Um, you know, when there are, when there are um, people who are crew members, you know, and can, you know, be supervisors, they are. But otherwise, they can be, um, you know, they can be part of the project regardless. So I had a 10-year project in Central Arizona that was on Apache, Western Apache ancestral lands. And um, throughout the entire project, um, the Western Apache folks um, were 50% of my crew. And that was apart from all the consultation relationships and things like that, that the Forest Service was managing and the Department of Transportation were managing. Um, they were just part, part of the crew every day. And that, you know, completely transformed the way I thought of the landscape. I was on, you know, the lands that they knew of through memory and they saw the environment in different ways. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think there, it's important also not to diminish the, um, I mean, so they aren't the authority for their tribe. And, you know, I have to be very careful not to, to put them in a position where they're in conflict with what their cultural offices are saying for mm-hmm. sure but but they're absolutely informing um the you know every day the way that we interpret and understand the people who lived on that landscape in the past and we found you know ancestral apache sites um on the project as well which you know was was great for them to be able to go back home because those are really fragile sites that are hard to see and and they, they were pretty interested in that um, but but um, but that's also part of you know our working together. Like like the wage labor part of it is important. Mm-hmm. They're bringing it back to their communities, and then there's the formal parts um, of our work together as well. Um, and so and, and so you know I think I've worked up on the Navajo Nation and brought in you know both Hopi and Navajo archaeologists as well to work on ancestral sites up there. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but it's a way to get more people um, in. <laughs> Oh, that's a that's a wonderful way. I mean, of engaging is just bringing more folks into yeah. the working equation too. Yeah, I guess we should add though that like you know the challenge there, right? I mean, that's a sort of long term. Uh, I, I don't know if everybody sees that as a um, what do you call it? Like like a good thing, you know? The um, the oh, you bring you bring people in as labor, um, but um, where's the authority? And I think that I think the thing I'm trying to say is that they um, whether they're in a labor position where they're they're helping out just with the digging, like all the crew, or they're 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 not necessarily participating in the writing, but they're heard. Mm-hmm. And so we've also worked with a group. Um, there's a ethnography um, um, LLC down here called Anthropological Research that's um, owned by Marin Hopkins and TJ. Ferguson and they have a little staff and so they come out to the um, project and they do um, we call it like place-based interviews and so they'll talk to our crew they'll talk to the formal um, cultural advisors who come to the um, project area and try and put the voices into our reports so even if they're not the authors um, we want the voices to be present too and so trying to think creatively about how to capture the voices um, even if they're not um, authors is is part of the the, um, part of the trick and challenge and fun of working together. That's really cool. And that's a wonderful way to end this segment about that type of collaborative work. On our next segment, we will get more into topics and delving into this wonderful book. We will be back. Looking for other archaeology podcasts? There's so many to choose from. Why not try Fantasies and bust myths surrounding ancient finds and people? Or learn about the study of animal bones and archaeanimals? There's also the great Go Dig a Hole and the Ark and Anth podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Women in Archaeology podcast and all of these fun archaeology podcasts that are available on iTunes, Spotify, all over the place. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On this segment, 
we're going to talk a little bit more about our call to action or the editor's call to action with this book. And so, Kirsten, you can get us started. Yeah, so I guess the big question is, since we've really kind of dived into a lot of the topics that are covered in the book, uh, which is a really great exploration of the application of the idea of engaged um, and even in some cases, um, dipping our toes in to indigenous archaeology. Um, the big question is, what is the call to action? What what are some things that you think this book really brings to the forefront in um, people's minds as they read through this, or if anyone's considering purchasing or taking a closer look at the content of the book, um, should really consider? I guess I think that, like, well, we wrote the first chapter, um, I think, intended to be a call to action. Um, and we conclude that chapter with um, a couple pages on, on um, what we call how to engage. And I, I, I sort of mentioned this before in terms of how, I, I, you know, we all know how fragmentary um, the work is that we do, um, you know, with the preservation of, of what we find. And so the call to action is, is, is a call to be open um, to mm-hmm. me. And somebody, um, I was listening to a lecture um, by um, a Penn State um, archaeologist named, um, I think it's Kristen Douglas recently, who works in Madagascar. And she says she approaches her work like a child. And um, she says that, you know, I just, I want to like ask the questions and be open to um, all the answers and let the people around me educate me. And um, I, I feel like that's that's a big part of um, of the call to action is like even though you know by the time we're writing these books and doing this we have our graduate degrees and so we're feeling like we're, we've got the authority that the profession confers on us um, you know there's there's so much um, around um, archaeology that we don't know and I, you know we can we can fake it and we know when we're faking it um, but, but there's so much more there's so much more to learn and so so, so being open to um, you know kind of in, in every realm there is like recognizing that you know we're maybe we're younger archaeologists we're new to this area um, that people um, the descendant communities have have just so, such deep memories of these places maybe they haven't mm-hmm. stood in my project area on the highway but they've been talking about that place for for so long and they know it so so finding out um, how if they're willing to to share or how how we can and then how to um, also I, I mean I think the challenge in that of course is like you know as as project director I, I I am perceived as the authority but how do I share that and I think that's that's an interesting um, question of practice that we have to um, experiment with. Um, and um, some of that is in writing and how we write our reports, how we um, represent people's opinions in the legal processes that we do for archaeology when we're doing in CRM. Um, Kelly brought up um, public archaeology in the last section. Um, increasingly, I think the use of video is a way to capture voices. And, and I'm increasingly thinking about um, how do I give voice um, to um, to the people who are invested in this place mm-hmm. and how do I um, try and capture the voices of the people of the past in whatever ways that those can emerge through. Um, so that would be my starting um, call to action is to um, is to be open and to try and hear people and try to elicit, um, try and elicit um, what, what it is they know and how they know it. Um, and um, to be okay with um, not being right, with having multiple, um, or not even knowing what right is, right? I don't, I don't even know oh, that yeah. there is in archaeology um there's a we do our best jobs um in what we bring you i think mm-hmm. 
I'll start there and see see what else you guys have to say. Yeah, so oh, I think great. So an analogy that that we've probably heard all of our careers is that archaeology is trying to put together a jigsaw puzzle when you don't have the box with the picture on it. And you know that some pieces are missing. You don't know how many pieces are missing. And so it can be very discouraging if you, if you let it be. But I think what we're saying now is that it's not that the archaeologist collects the pieces and then that's all the police pieces that you have to work with or, or what you got through your archaeological techniques that, that ethnography and natural sciences and people in other countries who are publishing in other languages have um, some of those pieces as well. So you have to be open to it, which is just another way of saying what, what Sarah said is let, let the world teach you um, Mm -hmm. not just what you learned in, in college or with the the methods and theories that you were given under the rubric of, of archeology. So that's one thing is us opening ourselves as professionals to other relationships but then there's opening our profession to other people diverse people who may not even who who may want to pursue a career as an archaeologist Mm -hmm. and may not have the resources or may not know what it is so mentoring comes into this and uh, and providing the the resources for for people to do that who otherwise would not have access but then there's also how can you take part without being a professional? Volunteers, mm-hmm. avocationalists, people in other fields who who want want to help out on a part time basis, not as a career. Mm-hmm. That's really important. So much archaeology is based in volunteerism, and I think we tend to forget that in a lot of our work settings. That's true. And one thing I've been thinking about with the increasing conversations about, um, you know, diversifying um, um, archaeology, because we we know that um, we're we're not a very diverse uh, profession, is um, kind of where, where, um, if, you know, um, if archaeology isn't providing good jobs um, for um, people from from different backgrounds, um, how can they, how can people contribute? And so, um, you know, I, I definitely agree with the volunteerism, but I also think that like us talking to like other community groups, um, so um, so like I think about the people who work in the um, TIPO staff and for their tribes um, in various ways, if we reach out and talk to them, then they're participating in archaeology, but they're also working for their communities and something that's very meaningful to them too. Mm-hmm. Um, and looking for other similar group or, or other groups in other types of communities, you know, if we're not working, um, you know, if we're working in a, you know, more urban area, are there, are there similar kind of social groups? Um, like, like I think in other parts of the country, people talk about reaching out to church groups, that may be the best representative of a place. Um, so, so how do we, how do we engage, um, you know, beyond, beyond, um, yeah, into, into all, into all the people who are invested in a place, because there's many layers to every place as well. Mm-hmm. And you also mentioned, um, like having different scholarship opportunities can go a long way with bringing the professional side of mm-hmm. uh, engaging more, um, uh, creating a more diverse uh, community within archaeology is providing scholarships, opportunities. Kelly mentioned uh, mentorships. I think that, that mm-hmm. could go a very long way in creating not only a more welcoming field, but actually allowing financially for that to occur. 
That's one of the yeah. main barriers to a career in archaeology. It's not a high-paying career no. <laughs> compared to other, other things that parents want you to do. So there, there are financial barriers depending on your, your family's resources. So I think we need to pull together to, to make more opportunities in those areas. And an example that, that I worked in 20 years ago before I became a, a professor was um, I was funded by contract archaeology that the Navajo Nation Archaeology Department was doing. Um, the funding came from federal highway funds. Mm-mm. And we were doing highway projects on the reservation. But the, the tribe and sometimes grants, I remember we got one from the Park Service, provided funding for student workers oh. and a little bit of scholarship money along with with wages to work with the department. So we were, it was very clear that as a, a, a non-Native person, I was there to mentor Navajo students to the point where they would be able to do my job and then I would leave. And this was always understood. And so for about seven years, I was part of the student training program based here at Northern Arizona University. And now a number of the, the people who were students at, at that time have PhDs in archeology. span Carrie Thompson, for example, teaching mm-hmm. here at NA. She's the chair of the department now, by the way. Oh my gosh. And Oramarek <laughs> Martinez is here. And just, just to toot NAU's horn, but there, there are others uh, who came through that student training program or similar programs where, where they were um, working professionally as well as going to school. And uh, it wasn't easy. It wasn't like a full ride scholarship to get a PhD, mm-hmm. which, but, but some programs have those. And I think if people really want to do this work, um, we, we can all help them find those opportunities and those resources. And, and as we age out of this profession, make, make sure that we're leaving opportunities, including financial legacies for, for people who want to come along behind us. Mm-hmm. I think that's a wonderful, wonderful call to action in terms of doing that type of thing, not only making it a more welcoming field, but helps us all realize the more we can do in terms of mentorships and, and whatnot. Can I mention a couple of organizations that, that I think are helping with that? Oh, please do. Right now. And one of them is called the Black Trowel Collective. Mm, yes. And they're not limited. So just Google that, Black Trowel Collective. And they give micro grants. So they're not talking about a, a full ride scholarship to a PhD, but they are talking about if you have a hiatus in employment or you're a dig bum, but you're trying to save enough money uh, to go get a master's degree, or you just need some funds to, to tide you over because cultural resource management is a boom or bust kind of operation. Very true. That they're very flexible about providing aid to, to young archaeologists and, and very interested in increasing um, opportunities to diverse um, students. Then the Society of Black Archaeologists, the SBA, mm-hmm. is is working on lobbying as well as um, mentoring. Awesome. And so, you know, can can we get legislation for protecting important places in Black history? Could we get legislation that that uh, facilitates inventory and return of ancestors, mm-hmm. which are not covered by the Native American Graves mm-hmm. and Protection Graves 
Protection and Repatriation Act. You know, we need additional resources to mm. to help Black communities get get their ancestors back. Mm -hmm. So there there are a couple of things, and and I'll point to the success of women in archaeology, since that's the title of this <laughs> podcast. That used to be. Uh, not very long ago, a few decades ago, it was a very male-dominated profession, mm -hmm. and it had a really macho ethos. And women got in there, and some men helped mentor them, and, and some hindered. But um, but women mentored each other, and and again, some some senior women hindered. It's it's not across the board, mm -hmm. but we did mostly help each other succeed in this profession and now there are more women graduate students than than men yeah. entering the profession and a lot of departments are starting to swing from being very male dominated to to at least balanced and and some even more women than men the crm profession in australia is is overwhelmingly female as i understand it so you know there's some success and one axis of, of diversity Mm -hmm. So I yeah. think I think this can be can be done. I think and that highlights again, I think just the importance of those mentorships. I know for a lot of my mm -hmm. career without the, the mentorships that um, mentors that I had from uh, well, what's funny and is most of my mentors <laughs> went to NAU and then got me to go to NAU. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, you should go here. You should go here. Hey, you should have this job because of you went here and da 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 da. It's just one of those funny things. But um, I know those mentors meant the world to me and really helped me move along. That I I hope to be in that same position for people who are now coming up in that career. And I I I love that you keep bringing that up. That we can be mentors now. That as we age out, hopefully then those folks will want to do the same. Yeah. Yes, mentorship is important, and I really like the the mention of the uh, financial bit, because I think that's, as you oh, mentioned, definitely the biggest barrier. Mentorship is the second. Mm -hmm. And we'll always... definitely link to um, those in our show notes. We'll link to uh, yes. the Black Trial Collective and the Society for Black Archaeologists. Yes, because yeah. it's, it's, it's not just, can I afford to do this? Some of it's, can I afford to do this long time? Is this financially feasible? Um, and especially with the way that, you know, you move through, um, as was mentioned in last, uh, that was a baby burp, um, in the, the last, the second segment, um, as you move in through the, the ranks in say federal archeology span and in some cases, uh, cultural resource management, you move around, um, and for people who want to stay close to their community and who want to engage with their own community, um, it's hard to do. So having those financial, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, support. Support, support, security, resources. All of those things and <laughs> scaffolding. There we go. Yeah, that's a good word. Some financial scaffolding to be able to help people kind of stay in. Uh, because I have known of people who leave archaeology for family reasons, of course, for financial reasons, but also for general community reasons. Um, you know, some um, 
tribal archaeologists, for example, may uh, want to continue to support their community, but the the tribe doesn't necessarily have the funding or means mm-hmm. to support um, their own um, like Tipo office, Tipo office or CRM firm or any of that kind of stuff. So it's to be able to get that kind of stuff off the ground for tribes that should have such resource or should have such offices, you know, setting up resources or being able to have people involved in creating those um, types of things on their own is I think an important part of this whole process. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that made sense. It definitely it, it does. does. It definitely <laughs> does. And um, to start moving us in a different direction. I mean, I, I love everything that you all are saying. <laughs> this is all such wonderful information and I'm sad we're coming close to the end of the episode but for Sarah and Kelly, what would you say are your closing thoughts about um, what we've been talking about today? Kelly, I'm making you go first again. Oh, really? <laughs> it's always so hard to, to, sl- to summarize, you know. Or, yeah. this, whole, this whole book is very detailed case studies. Oh, very much so. I feel like we've covered the overarching points. But, uh, but yeah, I want to land on if you want to do this work. In, in one form or another, uh, what what are the encouraging words I can I can say? And that I guess is just connect and be open and think about different ways that that you can be engaged with the past, with archaeology, with communities who are interested in their past, with mm-hmm. education um, on on local issues like sacred places, landscapes, um, open space, green, green space in your community. All of these things are linked with history and identity and just be, be open to a variety of ways that you can engage with the issues you care about. And I guess I, I think, um, I mean, that Kelly said it exactly. Um, a word we used, I think, at the beginning of the program as we talked about um, applied archaeology. Mm-hmm. And we, um, I'd also say for, to, um, for people to consider um, how they can think of archaeology, not just as an academic discipline. I think everybody on this call has some experience with it in, um, in cultural resource management um, or in other or in government venues. And so think about like um, archaeology in an apply in an applied way. Like how do you get into the community? Because you can do that in your profession. And I think you can do it from any position um, mm-hmm. if you just think creatively. And then then um, yeah, and and then and then you're. Um, I think people will feel more relevance if they're if um you know some people struggle with like I've made this choice to be an archaeologist now how is it relevant? Mm-hmm. And I think if you're only looking at it for for the pure science of that you can have those struggles. But I think if you're looking at it in terms of like how am I helping my modern world as I study the past and as I study um, these places, I think people will be more satisfied. So I think trying to figure out ways to to kind of um, do that in, in the work and, and seek opportunities for that. However, the project is set up, mm-hmm. um, I guess might be part of my takeaway in an inarticulate somewhat way. <laughs> no, that was excellent. Those are incredibly important points. So seriously, both thank you so much for coming on the podcast to discuss the book, but also these much broader themes that are incredibly important to archeology span to not only, you know, move the field in a more positive direction, I think it will help a lot of archaeologists find ways to feel 
like they are still relevant in a modern world that we're not just, you know, we're not just studying dead things. If we're actually, it's a living, ongoing field and practice. Yep. And to make it more vibrant as we work yes. together. <laughs> yes. Thank you both so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks for inviting us. It was great. Yeah. yeah. Great fun. Oh, glad. And for our listeners, if you uh, want to suggest a topic, you want to come on the podcast, please contact us at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com. You can check out our other podcasts and blogs at womeninarchaeology.com. And they're also available on Spotify and iTunes. And you can also find us on Twitter at at womenarchies. Thank you so much for listening. Stay healthy. Bye. 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 <laughs>